All right. We're in Galatians chapter 4. And we are entering into part of uh, Paul's argument over why uh, we are not debted to keep the law. Why we are free from it. And he has been developing this in several lines of argument. Um, And really the book of Galatians, the more I study it, the more I see that it really forms... Uh, sort of a foundation and the basic outline for much of the center part of Romans that we can just take out, and he just develops them and and opens them up a little bit more in Romans. I find myself keep going into there, uh, chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, into Romans. Um, But this argument, of course, we see in Romans extensively, uh, where Paul wants to develop the whole idea of the uh, distinction um, between Abraham... And uh, the two covenants that are represented there by his children, the one that will follow the Abrahamic covenant, the one that will stand in opposition to it. And so that's where we are at in chapter 4, verse 21. If Just to remind you of some of the previous arguments against uh, the need to keep the law, that the Christian life is defined um, not by a set of rules, Um, that is imposed from the external. And so we do not go about and determine um, uh, our relationship with God premised upon keeping a set of rules uh, that other men can impose upon us, even though those rules may be given to us by God himself, hence the law but rather that the law really uh, brought us guilt and Hence, um, didn't solve a problem, but it did give us a step towards the solution. Because without guilt, there's no repentance. There's no sense of a need. And so the law had its purpose, is to teach us. Uh, Galatians tells us uh, there that is, there's a tutor, to tutor us in uh, God's righteousness and our failure to meet that standard on any level, uh, let alone on a level that we could describe as holy, holy, holy. Uh, and so we find that um, this, this condition of being under the law is really one of guilt and not liberty. It's not one of salvation. The condition of being under the law is one of condemnation because um, we can't keep it. And if we could keep it, why are there sacrifices every uh, year, year after year? There are the sacrifices that are going on. You've been studying that in Hebrews in Sunday school. Um, and so we find that it was insufficient to really deliver anyone. And by going back to Abraham, we are able to pull out the fact that, um, you know, Abraham didn't have the law. By going back to that position, we are bypassing the Mosaic law because we're going to a time before it ever was given. And so here come these Judaizers into the church saying, you've got to keep Moses' law, you've got to be circumcised, you're not getting into heaven. You don't have a relationship with God if you're not circumcised. And it's not just circumcision. It keeps going on and on and on. And pretty soon you have to keep all the law. And, of course, we are told by others that if you violate one law, you're guilty of all of them. And so we find that uh, by going to Abraham, we're going to a time before the law. And, in fact, uh, really only one or two commandments. We have a series of them given to Abraham, uh, but they were... Uh, conditional. That is, they were based upon his circumstances. I want you to leave your mom and dad, get out of the land of her, go to the land. I'll show you. We talked about that this morning. 
And uh, so that is a command, obey, and it's not something that he's going to continue to obey. It's not, it's not a, an edict for everyone then to get out of the land of your fathers and travel to the land that God will show you. Um, that was for Abraham at that occasion. Uh, and we find also the instruction, the commandment for Abraham to um, offer his son, his only son, Isaac. We see that later on. Uh, and we certainly have circumcision involved there uh, at, a, at a later time as well. So we find uh, the commandments of God, they were not institutionalized largely for Abraham in any way that we can really identify. That really comes with the Mosaic Covenant and that relationship. So Paul's going to take us back to Abraham. He wants to take us back to time before the law because he's the father of the, that the Judaizers would point to. They certainly keep talking about Moses, but let's go to one that predates Moses, who is the forefather of Moses. Let's find out what's going on there. On this occasion, as we get down, and again, we, we've dealt with some strong arguments. We just got done last week with a little bit of a, of a lesser argument, still a valid and important one, and that is the relationship they had with Paul. They didn't receive Christ and the law. They received Christ, and with that, they got the Holy Spirit. They got all the forgiveness. They became saints of God. They were part of the church. And if that could happen without the law, then why do you need the law now? And follow the example that Paul has given to you and the, um, the sincerity with which he brought the gospel with no personal interests involved. And so we come to verse 21, and he has a challenge now. Using Abraham, he's going to challenge the Judaizers that are in the region of Galatia and are causing these, these problems. Verse 21 reads, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Bring forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. What an interesting use of passage. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if this portion of Scripture wasn't in our Bible, or ones like it, and I started preaching this, some of you would take issue with it. Oh, you're taking things out of context. You're, you're, you're taking uh, things from uh, history and you're making them symbolic and applying them uh, willy-nilly. Uh, and really that's not the case at all. And so we are glad for a passage like this that calls us to understand the representations of some of the historical books that out of them we do derive some very important doctrinal principles And in fact, in the area of theology, because of passages like this, we have an area of study called typology, 
Um, and uh, what typology is, and you've heard me introduce this in the past, but it's always worth doing whenever we come to it in God's Word, is a study of, that's the ology part, right? We got all that, study of, uh, types. And what's a type? Well, a type is a, is a mechanism that is used by God where we take a real person, a real thing, or a real event, and we study them. And we see the historical events around them and the descriptions of them, but we recognize that the Bible then goes on and says something in reference to them that is well beyond what they are capable of representing or doing. Uh, that they are simply pointing to someone else either in the future um, or someone greater than them that, are, that is the fullest fulfillment of what they represent. Uh, let me give you a good example. The easiest example, and again, if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard this one over and over again. The easiest example, of course, is Satan. How do we ever associate his name with Lucifer? And how do we know that he was the son of the morning and that he fell? Uh, and how do we know all of that about him? Well, it's actually from a passage that's not even talking about Satan. It's talking about a king. But we recognize that the king doesn't fit all of this description, and so the king becomes a type or a representation of this other entity that is greater than the king, um, and that is, we have associated that with Satan himself, that he thought himself to be, I can ascend into the heights as high as the most high. Uh, well, obviously the king didn't think to do that. It was Satan who was doing that and who was the son of the morning star. And so we find uh, many types in Scripture, and uh, I have several books in my library that are just typology. Um, as we go through the ones that are given to us. And here we have a very interesting use of typology, of symbolism, looking at real people. We're not trying to make them symbolic people. We're not trying to make it allegory. Allegory is when you derive principles from fables. I got an interesting little Facebook post this week. Um, If this is just a book of fables, as some contend, then why is it outlawed in all these countries? Aesop's fables aren't outlawed in any of those countries. Why is this one outlawed if it's just a bunch of fables? Shakespeare's works aren't outlawed. Why is this outlawed? And so we're not talking about allegory where we make all of the historical books not true. In other words, that they were just made up stories to teach us certain spiritual or relational or uh, just principles to live by. No, type is different. It says these are real people, these are real events, but they stand um, as representatives of other truth that has much greater impact than their historical event. And these are used extensively in God's Word, um, and hence all the study around it and the work on it. And so this is one of those instances. And so Paul's going to take these these Judaizers who know the law, know the writings of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, they know that inside and out, at least they claim to. And he's going to take them back to Abraham, and he's going to talk about two different covenants. And he's going to start making derivatives. He's going to take something that happened here, and he's going to press these types into the future, uh, first of all into the nearer future, and then into the distant future. So we start off with just one generation removed from Abraham, so we're talking about his children. And hopefully we're somewhat aware of the storyline here, are we not? 
hopefully we are, of uh, the, what occurs. God comes to Abraham, says, I'm going to make many nations out of you, and you and Sarah are going to have a kid, uh, and, and Sarah's laughing. <laughs> I'm an old lady. Uh, what's he thinking? Uh, and uh, God says, why is she laughing? Um, and uh, uh, Abraham says, oh, um, okay, uh, and I'll wait. And he doesn't wait. And Sarah says, oh, certainly that's God's confused. We need to help God out. So here, take my handmaiden, Hagar. And so the servant girl becomes um, the uh, second wife of Abraham, if you will, and uh, gives birth to the son Ishmael, and there's been nothing but problems ever since in that act of trying to do God's work man's way. And Paul says this is the act of the flesh. This is, and that's not in terms of that, that there wasn't uh, a fleshly facet to Isaac's birth, because certainly he was physically carried and born, um, and there was no immaculate conception there um, or... Uh, in any sense of the word. Um, but it is the whole idea that on this occasion they did things man's way. Because they couldn't see past the limitations of this world and recognize that God can work what he chooses to work. And we take God at his word. And that's going to be very important to the argument. Do we take God at his word? That when we see in the scriptures... Um, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he the rock of our salvation, or is it he plus the law? Do we accept God at his word or not? When he says, when Christ declares to everyone, Jesus declares, I am the fulfillment of the law. It is finished in me. I have met all of the requirements of it. And now I am your representative here. I am the one that's going to atone for your sins. I'm going to cover them. I am going to mediate between you this new relationship. So do we take God as word or do we do it clumsily? Got to help God do it man's way. And yes, it's much easier to evaluate your relationship with God in fleshly terms if we use the law. Would you agree with that? It's pretty easy um, to say, oh, you broke this law, and therefore you don't have a relationship with God, and, and so therefore you have to give a sacrifice or something. You have to do all this effort to keep the law, and here's this physical activity of circumcision. Here's these food laws, and you're going to persist in them. Here are all of the Ten Commandments. We lay them all out there, and we say, well, these are e- much easier to measure. And from a fleshly perspective, we can look at it and say, this atonement thing through the blood of Christ, that's kind of mysterious and, and kind of out there. Um, this stuff of keeping the law, I mean, this is hands-on, literally. Okay, this is hands-on. This is right here. It, it, you can see it, taste it, feel it, smell it. The law is, is fleshly in its nature. It is of this world. And so he compares that to the work of Abraham and Sarah to trying to do God's divine work in the, flesh, in the minds of men, in the limitations of flesh. And so they saw their own uh, her own body and its limitations, not seeing God's grandeur 
and they make decisions built upon the flesh. And out comes Ishmael, the son of the bondwoman. And now, um, later on, of course, comes Isaac, because God comes and says no, and again, God comes and says no. Um, Sarah's going to have a child, and I'm going to be back here a year, and you're going to have it. Oh, no, can't. Let, let, let Ishmael stand before you, Abram says. Let him stand before you. Um, I did it already. I, I worked, we worked our own deal here. Let Ishmael stand before you. God says, no. That wasn't the plan. That's your meddling. That's you thinking fleshly thoughts and not recognizing that I'm God. And so he says, no, I'm going to come back, and it's going to be Sarah that's going to give birth. And, of course, there comes Isaac. And Paul goes to the point of saying that the Holy Spirit had to be involved in that um, to overcome. Not, not that we have another conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Sarah. That's not what we're saying. But the Spirit had to do a physical work in Sarah's body for her to be fertile again. And so this child becomes the product of a supernatural working of God in someone's life. And the imagery, the the symbolage that he's going to try to draw out from this is now you have two ways. You have the supernatural way of God's intervention in your life, or you have the let's do it man's way that we can see, touch, taste, and, and our senses can address much easier and there's less faith there (coughs) so we're at the first generation after abraham now he's going to project that type he's going to say here's the two mechanisms here's the two there's the supernatural and there's the fleshly now let's take it to the time moses so we're going to project into the period of moses and then beyond so what is Hagar. Well, Hagar is the law. The, the Ishmael becomes that picture that Hagar, the child of Hagar, the children of Hagar become the law. That the law is fleshly in its nature. It, is, it doesn't deliver us. There is no supernaturalness. Um, it's really quite mundane. Um, have you read Leviticus lately? Deuteronomy? I mean, there's only one passage of Scripture that's probably harder to read than those, and that's the first few chapters of Chronicles. Oh, my goodness, chapter. But those, through the Bible reading schedules, you get to that Chronicles book, is, and I'm like, oh, i got to read this. Just, just do it. Just. And I'm mispronouncing every name. and Then I get down to just initials. You know, C to this to C to the begat so. But it's a mundane thing because it's all fleshly. It's all the social laws, it's all the, and it's all stuff, you know, you got to take a bath here, you got to make sure you do this to your food, you got to show up at the temple at these certain times, you have to present this for this sin, and this for this sin, and this for this sin, and you have all of the offerings, you've got all, what a, what a, it is all flesh oriented, and it's, and ultimately it brings us into bondage, because at the end, of, the result of it is we're enslaved to it, and, and there's no breaking loose. It doesn't save us. It doesn't make us more spiritual. Um, it doesn't uh, really bring us into a right relationship with God because as we've already seen in the book of Galatians, that happened by faith. How do we know that? We have lots of examples in the Old Testament. People who came into a right relationship with God by faith who weren't keeping the law. 
I mentioned one this morning, Naaman. Did he get circumcised? No evidence of it. Maybe he did. But he went home, healed of his leprosy. And he took some dirt with him. <laughs> I love that. Um, we should have a dirt pile here. So you take dirt with you when you go on vacations. You know. um, he took some Israeli dirt with him. Um, and so he could put it out in his backyard or atrium or somewhere in his house so he could worship the God of Israel on Israeli dirt. And uh, that's what he was going to do. No indication he was keeping any other aspects of the law or had any training in the law. By faith, he believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see those examples. We have no indication that Nebuchadnezzar kept the law, but obviously becomes, by faith, a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, So we have multiple examples of that um, throughout Scripture. And so there... We know that Israel, um, by keeping the law, many times were in a condition of being rejected by God even while they were doing the sacrifices because they weren't doing it of faith. And that's what we've been studying in Jeremiah on, in the mornings where this, this act, doing all the externals, all in the flesh, they were bound into that, but it didn't save them because their hearts didn't fear the Lord. And so he has projected now Ishmael, Hagar, onto and said, this is the law. And he identifies her with Mount Sinai, where that bondage occurs. And then he projects it even further. So now we've gone from one generation to a few hundred years later, and this generation that received the law and the bondage that we have under the law at Mount Sinai. And now he's going to project it all the way into the church age, a few thousand years later. And he says, this is Jerusalem today. Jerusalem is Hagar? This is radical stuff he's writing to them. This would have been so offensive to almost every Jew to read this this analogy that he's just given. Jerusalem is the city of the bondwoman? This is Hagar's city? But he's projected into the church age. And and remember what Jerusalem was like. We just got down with our study in Acts, and what did we find out about Jerusalem way into the church age? They were all zealous for the law, James told them. Don't make any waves here, Paul. You see how many Jews have come to know Christ, and they're all zealous for the law. (sighs) And then a few years later, Jerusalem is gone. God allows the Romans to destroy her. But at this point, Jerusalem is still in existence. He points back and he says, yes, Jerusalem is the place where they're still binding everyone to the law. They're still zealous for the law. Like the bondwoman. They're still doing it in the flesh because they haven't recognized the supernaturalness of our salvation. And so it's the free woman that we are. We, and by we, he means believers, whether they're Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female. That's not... He's not really talking about who birthed you or where you live. He is talking about um, we, the church. So um, we, the church, represent something supernatural. And so what does he do? He takes us and he projects it. And I'm going to insert a projection because he doesn't stipulate it here. But we do know that there are two covenants. 
Um, and then he's going to reference another Jerusalem. So he says, the Jerusalem on earth, that's the place everyone sells for the law, and you're bound there. It's fleshly. But um, we're representing a different Jerusalem. So let me fill in one empty space in this analogy, okay? So he's taking it one generation. So we have Ishmael over here. We have Isaac over there. Ishmael, bondwoman, points to Sinai, the law. And we're talking about all the fleshly stuff, the law, the mundanes. All right? What he doesn't include in the list is this part of Isaac. Now, where does Isaac represent in this period of Moses? Well, remember what the tabernacle and eventually the temple, what it all was from. These earthly things weren't designed based upon earth. What was Moses given access to see? He was given access to see heaven. And all the implement, all the facets of the town, even, you know, not that there are animal skins of certain colors in heaven, but he saw the spiritual, he saw the supernatural, he saw the heavenly temple, and he was to build things that were according to them, that were like unto them. And so that was your pattern, and now you're going to make this pathetic little copy here on earth for your worship. And so here Isaac representing the free, the supernatural, God's intervention work, where he has to come in by his spirit and and rejuvenate a womb that's been dried up and made it fertile again, um, now comes in and it is a representation of the heavenlies, of the supernatural that Moses was told to copy. Here's what it looks like up in heaven in its perfection. Now you go down and here's the instruction manual on how to make your pathetic, earthly, fleshly copy of the tabernacle and then the temple in this little burg, eventually, of Jerusalem. Well, he's going to now project the Isaac branch of this uh, type to the church age. Just as Moses was copying the heavenly temple and tabernacle, now he says in verse 26, um, we are part of the Jerusalem above. Our allegiance no longer is to that city in that country at that location. Our citizenship isn't there. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we are not, we don't, have allegiance to the city of Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel. That is not the connection. Our connection is to the Jerusalem that is above, the city of peace. And, of course, we're looking forward to to that coming down. We know that there's a new Jerusalem as one facet of eternity, what we call heaven, which encompasses the new earth, new heavens, new Jerusalem. Um, the abode of God, um, and what we expect for eternity. So that's our membership. Our membership, our, 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 our uh, citizenship is into the spectacular heaven, the Jerusalem above, that the new Jerusalem is our allegiance. That is what we serve. We don't serve the, the bondage Jerusalem, the fleshly Jerusalem, the one that's here on earth that's, that's, that's bound to these walls and these buildings and this terrain. 
And then he takes another passage. He's going to talk and develop the idea of why is it that there's going to be more people in the New Jerusalem than the children of Abraham physically. And again, we have this distinction between that's of the flesh and that which is of God. Here we go. There's going to be more people come into the church than just the physical descendants of Abraham. And he goes to a prophetic statement in verse 27. He is uh, quoting out of Isaiah, Isaiah 54, and here's what he is quoting. He says, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. And so here's the childless woman without any prospects uh, of, of having children. And it says that she becomes the picture of the church who is going to have multiplied more children than the Israel. Remember, Abraham was promised how many descendants out of his body? As the sands of the sea will be the descendants out of your body. An idea there of the quantity. But here he comes, he says, listen, this barren one, And again, he's tying this back really to Sarah, who was at that time barren, and from a fleshy perspective, without God's intervention, childless and unable to give children, is become full of children. And the church is going to have many more, not just in terms of the quantity, but the breadth. There's going to be all these people groups coming into the church, not one here or one there like we saw in the Old Testament, but but entire churches. communities, uh, family units, entire uh, people groups will be coming in and so that we have all these people. And what are we? We are the children of promise. We are the supernaturally born. We are the ones that God has intervened on behalf of. And so by God's divine intervention, Sarah has a child, Isaac. He is a child of the promise, and this is our lineage. So earlier, remember, in Galatians, he talked about you were all sons of Abraham. Well, now he wants to be more specific. <laughs> okay? Um, let's go one generation later. You're all sons of Isaac. Um, this is, by the way, a big deal in our world right now with all of Islam, right? They all claim to be children of Abraham, too all those Arabs, through the line of Ishmael. And they've just extracted Isaac. What Muhammad did was he just extracted Isaac from all the stories and inserted Ishmael and all the stories, and wham! They had the entire storyline with Ishmael going up and being and Abraham getting ready to sacrifice him on the mountain and not Isaac, and on and on. Um, and so Paul is very clear. We are not children of of the bondwoman. We're, we're the descendants not only of Abraham, but we are descendants of Isaac in the sense that Isaac represents the promises of God and the supernatural intervention of God. And that defines you. You're not defined by a list of rules you try to keep or a physical description um, uh, that doesn't define a Christian. Oh, you're not much of a Christian. Look, and when I was growing up, 
<clears throat> in fact, in my alma maters, both in college and in seminary, um, Christian men weren't, didn't wear beards. In fact, it was against the rules of the institutions I went to for me to look like this. So let's see here. Justin, Scott's trying. Yeah, pretty much all of you guys. Facial hair, oh, you're not Christian at all. Had to be clean-shaven, haircut above the ears. and uh, But my school at least did say, well, this is just our preference. This isn't the law, but this is our preference. And they're really um, making that preference because there are a lot of churches that were holding those kinds of standards that this is what a Christian young man looks like. Never mind that Jesus wouldn't have met those standards because <laughs> he obviously had a beard. He had it pulled out. Can't pull out a beard that's been shaved off all his life. Um, and so, uh, and by the way, both those institutions today allow men to have beards. And that's just cultural stuff, which is silly that we have these external descriptions of what Christians should look like. When what a Christian really looks like is someone who has the wondrous working of God's intervention in their heart. It's when God has done something supernatural in us, that we have by faith trusted in something we don't really see and can't touch and we are taught it by God's word and we know historically this person came, did what he did, uh, died, buried, rose again. We have that historical uh, evidence there. Um, But the fact that that can be applied to me thousands of years later um, is is incredible that, that God made such a salvation available to all who would believe and we recognize that this is a heavenly thing this is a god work in us and it's not us earning it it's us receiving something that god has done that we allow him to intervene in our life to forgive us of our sins to to call us holy when we're not holy um, to uh, make us children of god with all of the promises of god given to us uh, waiting for us to lay hold of them by obedience to God. Um, and so we, we, are, we are new creatures by the divine intervention. And so we are the children of Isaac. Not just the sons of Abraham. We're the children of Isaac. We have the promise. We have divine intervention in us. And it's not us trying to work it through the mundane fleshly activity to earn it. And it's sad to look through church history and see how many times um, the mainstream of the church has been pulled back to some form or another of fleshly work as the premise and the definition and the appearance of being right with God. That you have to wear these certain beads, you have to carry this certain Bible, you have to pray these certain prayers at certain times in your life, you have to participate in these certain events, and, and we see large numbers of quote-unquote Christian churches uh, that uh, are holding to this similarly. And there's no external, mundane activity by which you can get rid of your sin. You can pray as many Hail Marys and Our Fathers as you want, and it will not deal with one of your sins. In fact, you've just added to your sin list. Because now you're denying Christ's completed work on Calvary's cross. You're denying divine intervention as the means of salvation. 
you're being a child of Hagar. You're being a descendant of Ishmael, not a descendant of Isaac. Of freedom and a promise. And so, um, again, what's, now that we have these two, and here in the church at Galatia, both groups are represented. And Paul says, what do you think is going to happen when both show up in the church? You're going to have conflict. Why? Not because Isaac was messing with Ishmael, but because Ishmael was messing with Isaac. And that's why God says, you listen to your wife, Abram, and you drive Ishmael and his mom away. I'll take care of them. I've got plans for them. And and, uh, he intervened on their part, and he fulfilled his promises, um, which is another whole lesson on the working of God in consideration of the foolishness of men to think in the fleshly terms only. There's going to be contention. What's the contention? Ishmael is going to cause problems for Isaac. So fleshly men come into the church and are going to cause problems for those that recognize the supernatural nature of our relationship with God. They're going to come in and try to press the issue that, no, we have it because first we were first. (laughs) We come prior to you. And because um, we say so, you got to keep the law. So, yeah, expect them to oppress you. Expect them to come. And um, just as it did back then, it extends now into the church. And so how should the church respond? When you have those that are flesh-oriented persecuting those that are supernatural or spirit-oriented within one local church, what are you called to do? Well, Paul says it in verse 30. It says, let's just do what God told them to do. Cast out the bondwoman. Get rid of Ishmael. And his mom. Get those that are so committed to the flesh and cannot see the supernatural nature of our relationship with God and its intended um, liberty in life that we're going to talk and define and be careful with later. Um, we get into chapter 5. Get them out. They aren't the same. They're different. Separate yourself from them. Remove them. Maintain who you are in Christ. Don't let them come in and destroy that because they don't really grasp it fully. Now, I want to remind you that the people he's talking about many times are called Christians even by the Bible. These people are believers. And so there is a facet here that Paul's trying to reach them as well. But there are those within that, the leadership within that, that Paul calls false teachers who aren't believers. And distinguishing between those is kind of tricky, isn't it? Well, what do we have to do now? We have to go in and say, well, are you adamantly committed to this to the point that you're unteachable? Now we have to identify you as as committed to falsehood, and we're going to ask you to leave. But if you've only been taught this all your life, and this has been what you've been inundated with by others, 
and but you believe in Jesus Christ, then we welcome you here, and we want to teach you chapter 5 of Galatians. We want to help you discover the liberty that you have in Christ and also the parameters of that liberty you have in Christ. We want you to, to, to realize the supernatural working of God and that that alone defines your relationship with God. Is Jesus Christ the one and only that you are depending upon his work on your behalf for your forgiveness and for your relationship with God, for your sonship, for your redemption and atonement. And that alone, and that is something that many believers, true believers, struggle with because of the environments that they have been raised in under the teaching of those who are really children of Ishmael, not of Isaac, because they don't get it. It's not about externals that we hold people to. It's about your heart and what exudes out of it. And I can't change your heart. I can make you conform to a bunch of laws and hold you to it and bash you over the head if you break any of them, um, require you to crawl on your knees somewhere to make penance for it, um, but it's not going to change anything, and it's the flesh. Rather, we're going to call you to a level of righteousness and liberty that can only be attained by divine intervention, (laughs) and that's what God offers. I'll intervene. I'll make you a new creature and make all things pass away and all things become new. And we want to lead people into that truth. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So we're not just going to say, oh, if you're an illegalist, get out of here. Um, We want to distinguish between those. And you're going to encounter people that this is all they've really known. And and to be very patient and um, careful and also thorough in teaching but also recognizing that if it's if there's just this adamantness that uh, it's just time for you to go away. We're going to just recognize that you're a child of Ishmael and you just can't get your mind out of the flesh and into the spirit. That this is, that, that it's about a heart relationship and not these externals. Well, I've gone late tonight. So five minutes. So um, let's have a word of prayer and we'll continue next week and... Uh, uh, into chapter 5 of Galatians. I'm taking pretty large chunks for me, I know. Um, you're probably not used to me taking this large of a chunk, and I'm doing the same thing Jeremiah because that's a huge book. Um, but uh, it's a single argument, so we need to look at that in that fashion. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, and thank you again for your word. And we thank you for intervening. Uh, we all think we got ideas of what it takes to please you, but uh, we would fail. And we thank you that you sent your son to do the impossible for us. And Lord, we rejoice in the promises and the liberty that are ours because of your work and that we, by faith, can receive all of it. And Lord, we just tend to get trapped sometimes into the flesh because it's so handy. (laughs) Lord, help us to see the heavenly side of your work in us and allow you to do that work even when it goes beyond our understanding and our experience that we might uh, truly trust in you to do not just the impossible but uh, many times just the improbable or the unexpected.
that we might wait on you uh, to work in us your purposes to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.